I'm Nicandro Yanachi, web content strategist at the National Constitution Center. And welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. As part of Political Fest, a nonpartisan festival held in conjunction with the 2016 Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, the National Constitution Center hosted leading presidential historians to discuss how America's past presidents have confronted the nation's gravest constitutional crises. This program was held at Congress Hall on Independence Mall in partnership with the Independence National Historical Park. Here's Jeff to get us started. Thank you so much, Cindy, and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the best constitutional spot in America uh, to begin what is sure to be a historic week. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of the National Constitution Center just across Independence Mall. And the National Constitution Center, as many of you know, is a very special place. It is a private nonprofit that was created by Congress to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This is excellent. We have our loyal group has trudged across for the congregation, members of the congregation. You can now recite the catechism here in Independence uh, Hall. And we convene the best minds in America from all perspectives to discuss the constitutional issues at the center of American life. It's going to be an amazing week uh, here in Philadelphia and at the Constitution Center. Just when this panel ends, I'm going to invite all of you dramatically to march with me across Independence Mall to the Constitution Center where we can hear Senators Coons and Durbin discuss the Senate and the Constitution. On Wednesday, we have a group, another group of amazing historians discussing George Washington's conception of the presidency and the Constitution. And we are displaying right now Washington's own copy of the Constitution. So when you're over there, you can see his underlining of the Article Two powers and him reminding himself exactly what he's supposed to do as president. We have now uh, three of America's most distinguished historians discussing the presidency and the Constitution. We're in this amazingly historic hall where, as Cindy said, uh, think of all that was debated here from the chartering of the Bank of the United States, which led to a constitutional standoff, to the Judiciary Act of 1798. And today we're going to discuss constitutional crises, starting with uh, Jefferson, and then we'll talk about Lincoln and Jackson and Johnson and FDR. And I want to begin uh, first by noting uh, the extraordinary group that uh, is sitting here. Sidney uh, Blumenthal uh, is the author of this magnificent new book that he recently came to the Constitution Center to discuss, which is A Self-Made Man, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was joined recently uh, during that conversation by Sean Wilentz, whose most recent book is The Politicians and the Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics, and Annette Gordon-Reed is also so generous in coming to the Constitution Center uh, whenever we uh, ask. And her most recent book is The Most Blessed of Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson, The Empire of the Imagination. This is a dream team of American historians. Please join me in welcoming them to Congress Hall. We need to begin by 
talking about the first constitutional crises and also defining what a constitutional crisis is. Obviously, it's not conflict between the branches because the framers intended conflict between the branches. They wanted ambition to counteract ambition. So I want to begin, Annette, by trying to define a constitutional crisis. Uh, I'm going to put on my constitutional reading glasses to put on, uh, th there are three proposed definitions by uh, Jack Balkin and Sandy Levinson. They talk about one type of crises arise when political leaders believe the exigencies require a public violation of the Constitution. Two are crises where fidelity to constitutional forms leans to ruin or disaster. And the third are situations where publicly articulated disagreements about the constitutions lead to extraordinary forms of political activism, including people taking to the streets. And that was the election of 1800 a constitutional crisis, and what is a constitutional crisis? Well, it was a constitutional crisis, but not in the way that uh, Jack uh, suggests here. This was sort of a, a problem because the election of 1800 exposed a weakness in the Constitution. Uh, it resulted in a tie between the combatants, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, which was the election was basically a rematch from 1796, but they ended up tied and they didn't know what to do. They weren't supposed to tie through a process that's too complicated to go into here. Um, the idea, the party had the idea that Jefferson was supposed to win and he ended up tying and there were 35 ballots and he won on the 36 ballots. During all of this time period, there were people who talked about raising the militia if he did not, in their respective states, if he did not win. So it's, these crises are, this is a structural crisis uh, because there were things that the, Congress, that the uh, framers had not intended when they set up the Constitution, which was rectified uh, with the 12th Amendment. So there's the sort of problem that you have when you're doing something new, uh, they had never done this before, and you don't think of all the contingencies. So this was a crisis in form. All the other, it's sort of some, something like Jack suggests with people thinking about possibly taking to the streets if Jefferson didn't win. So it had the implications of the, the sort of makings of a political crisis along those lines. But the basic one was one that required changing the, the structure of the Constitution itself. But it was a crisis. That's a great definition. It was uh, a conflict where the Constitution didn't provide guidance about its resolution. We know some of it from the musical Hamilton, but how was the crisis resolved? I, I wondered how resolved? long we were going to get. Yeah. How long we were going to get it's, before we had to mention that. But the, go the, ahead. The, 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 Groucho Marx, the Groucho Marx magic duck the comes out right now. I said the magic way. Well, Annette, you did a great podcast with Mike Klarman where you expressed some gentle... Uh, questions about whether we were lionizing Hamilton too much and Jefferson too little. How, how was the crisis uh, resolved? How did Jefferson win? Well, and, he, won, and he won in the House. I mean, he, they actually, you know, they politicked. There was some notion that there was a deal that was made with, uh, with the politician. Jefferson denied that, but it, sort of, it was sort of a deal in a non-deal kind of way. And the tie was broken, and he became president. And he termed this the Revolution of 1800. One of the things I wanted to mention, um, thinking about the, the superintendent's uh, um, introduction, this was a real change of power. Adams to, um, from Washington to Adams, they were Federalists. So the mo really momentous thing, which was a momentous thing, but the really momentous thing was the switch from the Federalists to the Republicans, a completely different 
change of hands, and that's what you always worry about. Uh, what happens when one party takes over from the other? Uh, we know from ancient Rome and other kinds of republics, it usually comes when somebody stabs someone. Uh, in this situation, it was a peaceful transfer of power, and Jefferson saw it like that. It could have amounted to violence. Some people, uh, as I said, threatened, but it didn't. It was resolved by the normal processes of, uh, of the House. Fascinating. Uh, Sean, first of all, was that debate in this room? We're trying, no, trying to figure to out if it when, was when they moved to New York. Um, exactly when they moved to New York. C Cindy, you said it was 1800, and it sounds oh, like... Oh, all right. Well, then, then, no, no, then no. it wasn't here. No, it's not here. Yeah. It's not here, because yeah. they're, they're in New York already. Okay. I mean, they're in, they're in um, D.C. already, what was going to become D.C. So, Sean, you were saying, imagine this room and the debates that took place here. Tell us about some of them. One of them was over the Bank of the United States, which led to our second crisis, which involved Andrew Jackson. But first, channel some of the debates, describe them, and then tell us about well, the Well, that one's important. I mean, the, the debate over the bank, the first bank in the United States, which was right in the middle of Hamilton, I mean, it began as an argument within the cabinet. It was very small. It was three people having an, it was two people having an argument, all addressing the President of the United States. Um, <clears throat> it, then, it then came into, into, into the House, um, and that was a oof, um, momentous one. Um, I'm trying to think of others that were very, very big. Um, the Judiciary Act, I think, was debated here. Of Judiciary Act, the, the, the Fugitive Slave Act? No. Yes, the Fugitive Slave Act would have been, would have been, would have been uh, worked out here. I'm trying to keep my, it's very hot out today, so I'm trying to keep my, my dates straight, which in for the story is very, very important. It tends to be that in, in Independence Hall. Well, describe what were the clash of ideas? What were the competing constitutional visions that led to the clash over the constitutionality of the bank? We have at the Constitution Center in this new exhibit on executive power, Jackson's veto of the second bank. Uh, along with Johnson's veto of the Second Reconstruction Act. What was the well, Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian vision? Well, why don't we move to Jackson, actually? But let's okay, talk about good. that, because I want to move in time, and we don't have that much time. But Andrew Jackson thought that the Bank of the United States was, was unconstitutional. Um, he thought that um, it gave um, it too much power, basically, to a private corporation, and that uh, the, the Constitution did not allow for that. Um, and he did something extraordinary. Um, Congress passed it, not here, but Congress passed it in D.C., and he vetoed it not on the basis of anything other than the fact that he thought it was unconstitutional. So that was an act where he truly expanded the power of the presidency as much as anything else. So coming out of, uh, coming out of these constitutional crises, that wasn't a constitutional crisis so much, but it certainly helped redefine the executive and redefine the branches. The real constitutional crisis for Jackson was the nullification crisis. Tell us about the nullification crisis. Well, the nullification crisis was about something very boring, the tariff. Um, it was also, like many things in American history during this period that were not about slavery, it was about slavery. What happened was the state of South Carolina, um, which was very angry at a very high tariff that had been passed, or even a compromised tariff that had been passed, took it unto itself to say that it could nullify a federal law within its own jurisdiction. A federal law that was passed, this is a very timely issue these days, because states are, are asserting this once again, that if the state of South Carolina did not like a law that the federal government had passed, it could nullify that law, could call, call a special convention, and declare that that law did not apply in South Carolina. Now that was an extraordinary action which Andrew Jackson would not let stand. He couldn't, it wasn't about a veto, it was about a proclamation, and it nearly came to violence. I mean, Jackson was ready to send in troops. He, was, he, was, he, he ordered various um, um, maneuvers in Charleston Harbor, to make sure that um, the, the, the federal law would be enacted. Um, and he really, he, he, he forced them down. 
and uh, eventually the, the, the nullification crisis was ended with no nullification. But there was a real federal crisis, a real crisis over federalism, over many other things. Because here it was not as much in the, as in 1800, there were just things that they had not thought of. There were some people who thought, Jefferson was among them, that all branches of the government had to the capacity to determine whether or not something was constitutional. So it's not exactly crazy that, that Jackson thought that. Uh, we are used to the idea that the Supreme Court is the final law, and we, we accept that. But in the early period, it wasn't, that was not established. It wasn't clear that it was only the court that had the opportunity to do that, or the, or the responsibility Jefferson would have said to do that. And Chief Justice Marshall, when he recognized the power of judicial review in Marbury versus Madison, did not assert that the court was the only branch that had the power to interpret the Constitution. He embraced the more modest Jeffersonian view that all three branches could weigh in and a law could only go into effect when all three agreed, which is why Jefferson didn't object to Marbury. But uh, Annette, tell us, what was the vision of, uh, of, of state versus federal power that was at issue here? Did Jefferson and Madison in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions agree with nullification? Well, Jefferson uses the word nullification. Madison shied away from that, and it was about uh, the Alien, Alien and Sedition Act. It happened in a different kind of capacity. Uh, but Jefferson clearly believed that states had rights and that, that the uh, federal government could not trample upon. Um, and he was sort of used because he had that word nullification in there. Once it was, it wasn't originally known that he had written this stuff, but once it's determined that it was he, um, he became sort of a patron saint for, saint, for states' rights. Uh, but he went back and forth on these kinds of things. Jefferson could depending upon the year and the time, uh, say things that could be contradictory. But he definitely had a strong states' rights bent. And it was unclear who had the final word yeah. on what the Constitution meant. And with the Virginian and, and Kentucky resolutions, it wasn't they were saying that the states had the final word, but they were appealing to the state legislatures exactly. to kind of intercede on this issue of, of, of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Mm -hmm which to my mind were unconstitutional. Well, they were, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you weren't around, but it's, it's unconstitutional. But you just think about how strange it is, how, how new it is to decide how the power is going to be distributed. We settled on this. If they were to come back, and I, I never, people always ask me this and always hate it, but I'm going to do it. Um, if they were to come back and see that the court is seen as, is like this sort of gigantic super legislature, a, a gigantic, a small super legislature with gigantic powers, They'd be really surprised at that idea because we have sort of moved away from the idea that three branches are co-equal in, in those terms. There's judicial supremacy in the Yeah. Court. Hamilton as well, even the great nationalist, said that the court was the least dangerous branch because well, it wrong. had neither person or <laughs> <laughs> No, I, don't, I mean, I don't dangerous. I, I know in the sense that he meant it. He meant it. He thought it, was, it didn't have the power of the purse. It didn't have the power of the sword. Uh, it would be persuasion. And there was this sort of idea that the men, and he would have thought they were men who were on the court would have made the best interests of the country at heart. It wouldn't be something that was personal. He really believed in law as this thing that could be found out there, and we don't anymore. We know that it's political. Well, we'll return to that crucial question, but we're setting up Sid's intervention and the central constitutional question that was ultimately settled in the Civil War on the Battle of Appomattox, and that was who is sovereign, the people of the United States as a whole or the people of each state? 
And this was a question that, infl that inflamed my excitement as a law student when I remember Akhil Amar from Yale, who's going to be at the Constitution Center on Wednesday discussing the presidency of Washington, insisted that from the time of the framing, Madison and James Wilson incited, insisted that the people of the United States as a whole were sovereign, and therefore secession was unconstitutional from day one. I, channeling some other writers in an overconfident way, said that it wasn't until the Civil War settled the question that the sovereignty of the whole people was established. Uh, Sean or Annette, and then we'll bring in Sid and Lincoln. Do you think that uh, Madison and Wilson believed that secession was unconstitutional from day one, or did it take the Civil War to establish that? I think that they did, and I think that Andrew Jackson actually did. I mean, Andrew Jackson and Daniel Webster and others in the 1830s put this down very, very clearly, put the, you know, uh, laid this, this, this doctrine, which is that, in fact, the federal government precedes the states. The states came up with a constitution, but the constitution, as we know, was to form a more perfect union. The union already existed. The union was there before the state governments were there. The union went back to 1774. This is what Jackson was saying. So I think that the idea was very, very clear. What, 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 what Abraham Lincoln had to face was a, was a crisis that went well beyond nullification. And, and certainly Madison in his old, elder years, when people tried to enlist him on behalf of the nullifiers, he said no, uh, that, that was not the case. So as an older man, and speaking for Jefferson, channeling Jefferson, that he would not have been um, a nullifier. So that, this is Madison just before, in the years before he died. But Madison and Federalist 39, I'm still not going to let this battle go. <laughs> I, I know I was right. Absolutely. Law school Federal, is over, Jeff. Okay. I know. Law school is never over at the National <laughs> Constitution Center, which is a constitutional feast to delight all people. Federalist 39 talks about dual sovereignty. Sometimes the people are sovereign in their capacity as people of the state, and sometimes as people of the nation. And of course, Jefferson did talk, endorse some nullifying words toward the end of his life. So. I'll take, you can settle the question and I'll give it up, Annette. Do you think it was settled from the beginning or was it uh, at least, was it, it was an open debate? It's not settled for beginning. It's not settled for the beginning. There we it's, go. It's, it's all in flux. They don't know. They're making it up as they go along. There's no wisdom that it sort of extended for the ages. I mean, Washington is asking, you know, three years after the Constitution is ratified and they're in the cabinet meetings, Washington is asking them, what does this mean? They were there. If they don't know three months, you know, three years afterwards what various things meant, I mean, certainly it was not settled. It's a work in progress. Great. Okay, Sid, we've been dramatically uh, waiting for your intervention. And Lincoln, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's position on the unconstitutionality of secession was his defining position in the greatest constitutional crisis the nation has ever uh, faced. Describe his position. Why did he believe secession was unconstitutional and why did Calhoun and others uh, disagree and how did the Civil War settle the question? Let's begin on the deathbed of Andrew Jackson Excellent. who said his, his um, greatest regret as he was dying was not hanging John C. Calhoun. <laughs> wow. He, and, he could really let go of prejudice. Calhoun, <laughs> Calhoun he remained Andrew Jackson to the end. Yes. And um, the reason, uh, one of the reasons was because of the nullification crisis. Calhoun took a position that um, the United States was a compact of the states and that the states had supremacy. Jackson, in the proclamation of nullification, declared that it was the creation of the United States through the Constitution that formed the states and that the states were subsidiary. That, that position was um, 
articulated further by Daniel Webster as a senator from Massachusetts in his famous second reply to Hayne, who was an acolyte of Calhoun, a senator from South Carolina. All this leads up to Lincoln. Because, uh, that's the predicate. Lincoln had early on uh, stated his belief in uh, the constitutional idea of the union uh, uh, being the uh, the basis of the country and that the states being secondary. Lincoln, even early in 1854, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, repeals the, the Missouri Compromise and opens the extension of slavery uh, to the Western territories gained through the Mexican Cession, um, uh, puts the words states' rights in quotes. He doesn't really believe in states' rights. So now we get to 1860 and the great crisis. This is the constitutional crisis that's been building since Jefferson, since Jackson. The very election of Abraham Lincoln precipitated a constitutional crisis, the greatest in our history. And um, it led, uh, because Lincoln had pledged to oppose the extension of slavery, it led immediately to secession. Secession had been planned before Lincoln's election, there was uh, considerable coordination among the leaders of the southern states, and every ordinance of secession gave as its reason uh, slavery, the preservation of slavery as the reason for secession. Before Lincoln became president, uh, the, the crisis uh, developed. It unfolded further. Uh, president James Buchanan declared that there were no powers in the presidency delegated that would allow him to deal with a crisis of secession. Uh, uh, Winfield Scott, who was the general of the armies and had been the general, think about, how, about his career, under Jackson during the nullification crisis and had been the general uh, in the Mexican War, said that an hour of Jackson would have stifled the fire in its cradle. But oh, for an hour of Andrew Jackson. Right. But Buchanan allowed this crisis to develop, so much so that the Secretary of War uh, turned over the federal arsenals containing all their weaponry to the new Confederacy, even while he was sitting in his office as, as the US Secretary of War. So there was treason. Uh, going on. Lincoln is coming in uh, during this crisis. And the crisis then um, uh, is pinpointed on one question, and that, and, uh, that is the uh, Fort Sumter, which is a federal fort in uh, Charleston Harbor. And would the uh, United States withdraw its forces and turn that fort over to the new Confederate states? Lincoln has already rejected a peace conference that took place in the transition when he's president-elect in which John J. Crittenden posing himself as the successor to the great compromiser, Henry Clay, um, offers six constitutional amendments, including one that would codify recognition of slavery in the United States into the Constitution. Lincoln says he will have no compromise with this. So now we reach the crisis at Fort Sumter, and the question is, will he supply the fort or not? Edmund Ruffin, who is the great 
fire eater and a proponent of secession in South Carolina says that the blood that will be spilled there will bring in Virginia into the new Confederacy. Virginia was still holding out. There, were, there was political tension uh, involved in this, beneath this constitutional crisis. And Lincoln thought that the longer the tension went on, the more tenuous became the hold of this new Confederacy because there were states that it held out. And that if there were elections held, pro-unionist Southerners might win the elections. And that was also the tension felt by the Confederates as well. And they had to act. So when Lincoln made the decision to supply Fort Sumter, not to send in troops, but a, a position of simply sending in supplies by ship, the Confederates decided to open fire. And they began the Civil War. And the decision was made by the, con the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. Now there's a long uh, uh, controversy and debate by pro-Confederates, neo-Confederates, and begun by Davis himself after the war, that it was Lincoln who precipitated the Civil War and caused it by supplying the fort, knowing that he would, quote, trick the Confederates into firing, and that he is responsible for all this. But in truth, the decision was taken by Jefferson Davis. Fascinating. And, and as Lincoln said, and the war came. And the, and the war came. Uh, that stark uh, statement. Um, Sean, what were Lincoln's constitutional arguments for arming Sumter? He talked about the Constitution as a contract and said that all parties to the contract would have to agree before it was dissolved. And he believed that a majority of the people of the entire United States rather than of this, each state needed to consent. Tell us more about his constitutional arguments. Well, he just, as he said in, his very, in the first inaugural, he said that secession was the essence of anarchy. That this was not a contract. This was not a compact of people who could, could, even with a contract, you can't just leave the contract willy-nilly. You know, that's, we learn contracts. But this was not even a contract. This was a sacred uh, entity. And you could not come in and out of it. The con it, was, it was so fundamental to his conception of what the Constitution was. So, from the very beginning, the idea of secession was something that he thought was simply could not stand, and he wouldn't let it stand. What they were doing in Sumter, I mean, effectively, what they were doing was taking over this, this alien force that, that did not exist. Lincoln never recognized the Confederacy. People don't remember that often. But as far as he's concerned, this was not a legal entity. It did not exist. It was people in rebellion, traitors, not a nation of any kind. So here were these traitors taking over federal, the, the things that belong to the people of the United States, forts, et cetera, customs houses, et cetera. And so the question, the crisis, is, as Sidney was explaining, was over precisely that, how to deal with that. And there was this fort where the, um, you know, the Americans were, you know, the, the, the just authorities, the United States, had this fort in Charleston Harbor, and the question was what was going to happen to it. And Lincoln was determined not to allow federal authority, the only legitimate authority, to give way. And that's what that was about from the beginning. 
Let me just ask Annette, what were the competing arguments of Jefferson Davies and Calhoun constitutionally for why secession was constitutional? Well, because it was, as we said, because it was a compact that the states were sovereign and that you had the right to leave, that once, if you thought that the federal government was going in a direction that usurped your rights, you had a right to leave um, uh, the union. The union, and there were, it, it came into, um, they came into the union with a, with a certain set of expectations about slavery, uh, the fugitive slave clause, uh, the three-fifths clause. Uh, they had discussed this and the determination, and the North came in with this, that they'd agreed that the institution would remain. So thinking that Lincoln was obviously going to destroy it, they thought that this was in violation of their original intentions, their, the original understanding of it. Now, Lincoln and his supporters would, would say in contrast, did, look, it's one thing to have slavery in the places where it already stood in 1789 when all of this was being, 1787 and 1789 when you're arguing about this, this is about the expansion of slavery. There was never an expectation that the United States, that slavery was gonna go west. And that's what really precipitated the, cri the crisis. And they understood that when Lincoln says, I would preserve it where it was, that's the death of slavery because it couldn't stay. Slavery is expansionist. Or they're not gonna stay in a place with a burgeoning African-American population, enslaved population. The land is depleted. There's not enough for people who want to grow. It's expansionist. The Confederacy is thinking not only about the West, they're thinking about Cuba, they're thinking about South America, they're thinking of a, of a, of a slave, a slaveocracy, you know, spreading everywhere. So that's, the, the Southerners would say, look, we came in with a deal. You're breaching the deal. And so there's a different understanding between the two parties about the nature of that deal. Sure, slavery in the South, let it stay there. But they knew that that couldn't, I mean, the Southerners understood that when he says that, what he's meaning is that he's, eventually this is gonna have to end because you can't just keep it confined to the original states. And that's when they decided to act and they understood that he was, a, you know, his election was a real threat to the planter society. And the secessionists were wrong about the Constitution too. I mean, it wasn't just that, it's quite clear the framers, although they made all those deals about slavery, quite clearly rejected the idea of slaves as property in the Constitution. There was no, they did not allow that to happen. Every time that the idea of property and man should be enshrined in national law came up, they said no. Which meant that Congress could, in fact, legislate over slavery in the territories. Well, Calhoun, well we Cal disagree about that, but okay. let's go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Calhoun always <laughs> argued that Congress had no constitutional right to legislate against the extension of slavery and um, always argued that was unconstitutional. So that was picked up by his protege, Jefferson Davis. Um, in 1858, in Lincoln's House Divided speech, he not only says famously, a house divided against itself cannot stand, he also says that he will put slavery on the course of ultimate extinction. And there were many ways to do that besides a civil war. You could, um, Use, you, there, there was a long campaign to end slavery in the District of Columbia. You, uh, the, um, the Southerners who controlled our federal government for decades uh, and had an iron grip on, on the United States government and operated from its innards and understood its machinery and uh, really ran it, had a vision. They had their own vision of manifest destiny and that destiny included taking the West for slavery and taking the Caribbean for slavery. 
particularly Cuba. It was an expansive vision of what Lincoln called a slave empire, and that many people like Lincoln thought was a slave empire. This was not a, slavery was not a dying, unprofitable institution. It was thriving, and it was politically virulent. And so when Lincoln was elected, um, that caused the crisis because the political balance of power had tipped. Okay, now let us talk about the resolution of this crisis. Lincoln at Gettysburg promises a new birth of freedom, promising to make real the promise of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the Battle of Antietam decisively settles the question of the sovereignty of the national people and the unconstitutionality of secession. And then we have the three Reconstruction era amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, uh, and uh, a series of conflicts between President Andrew Johnson and the Reconstruction Congress about the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Acts, which Johnson vetoed. And you can see Johnson's original veto of the Civil Rights Acts at the Constitution Center, Let's all right go next Russia to the Jackson veto. Exactly. We feel, really want to see that. I, I feel like a Ginsu knife salesman, but yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> well, interestingly, J Johnson's veto is right above Reagan's veto of the Civil Rights Act of 1988. And you will learn, as I did, that only 7% of presidential vetoes have been overridden. Johnson's veto uh, was one of them. Annette, you've written a great book on Johnson. Tell us about the conflict between President Johnson and the Reconstruction Congress over the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act and the conflict that eventually led to his impeachment. Well, Johnson was averse to all aspects of Reconstruction that would have provided any kind of, of uh, change or positive change for the life of the freed four million enslaved uh, former slaves. He was virulently anti-black and even the people who knew him said, you know, he has a sort of unconquerable prejudice against, uh, against the African race or whatever. And so everything that the so-called radical Republicans wanted in the way of bringing blacks into citizenship, he was opposed to. And it's often people wonder in the game of what if, uh, what would have happened if we'd had, even if not if Lincoln had lived, if you'd had a president who was less virulently anti-black who was in place, who wasn't determined to basically bring everything back to, you know, to have these slaves freed, but have them live sort of as, you know, in a form of, you know, peonage or whatever, sort of as total second-class citizens in the South. He opposed every kind of measure, so it was he got into a battle, and as you know, he was famously, you know, impeached, and he survived uh, the impeachment, uh, um, and he wasn't convicted in, in the Senate, he wasn't thrown out, but it was a time period when there were these hopes that were raised, but they were dashed because of his leadership or the form of leadership that he decided to uh, uh, to engage in. And it was just, uh, we lost a lot of ground in all of that. So it was a battle between presidential reconstruction. He thought that the president had the right to, um, uh, um, you know, to, to, conduct reconstruction, and Congress wanted to do it, and Congress ends up winning out on, on that question. Lincoln had started reconstruction even beforehand, and Johnson saw himself as continuing in Lincoln's footsteps, you know, as the president being in control of this whole question, uh, but Congress fought him on that matter. Congress saying these are the equivalent of, of, of territories. We have the right to organize territories, and so further we should be in charge and the president saying that he had the right to do it, and he ended up losing on that question. 
What's the answer to the what if? Imagine a president favorable to Reconstruction. Johnson insisted that Congress had no power to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which gave African Americans the same rights to make and enforce contracts and mm -hmm. sue and be sued and inherit property as white people. If the president had insisted that Congress did have that power, would the Reconstruction Amendments not have been passed? Well, I mean, of course, the 14th Amendment comes along and stands as the great bulwark for equality and citizenship for African Americans. It takes another 100 years to have that to come to fruition. Uh, but a different president, you know, you don't, everything, you can't change one thing without changing everything. So uh, we have the 14th Amendment, but as I said, it took 100 years to, to really get that in, you know, the benefits of that in place. If you'd had maybe land reform, if African Americans could have uh, had greater access to land, then they did end up having some access to land. But if you had a different leader who set the terms in a different way, one person wrote uh, uh, to, uh, to Johnson, one person who was writing about this said, you know, at, after the war was over, immediately after, we would have taken any terms that they gave us. But he held out hope for a white man's government. And that's what made them, that steeled them. They were completely defeated. They were terrified when Lincoln was killed, thinking that there was going to be further retribution and they would be driven even further down. But Johnson comes in and sort of reverses the course. Before he had said, treason must be punished. And then he immediately looks at this situation and sees the radical Republicans, the, the term radical Republicans, what they're trying to do from African, for African Americans. He recoils at that. And as much as he hated the planter class, and he did, he would rather see them in power than to see blacks and their supporters in power. And so he does an about face and then gives them very, very liberal terms for coming back into to the union. People who, who uh, uh, you know, were supposed to swear oaths, he really didn't make them do that. He, he was just very, very lenient in putting back in power the people who had been in power before. So you change one thing. If you had a different attitude, a lot of, it's like a domino effect. Uh, his recalcitrance, recalcitrance really buoyed the Confederates and gave them uh, the confidence to sort of say, we're going to take these things back as near to slavery as we can get it. Sid, I want to ask you what Lincoln would have thought of the 14th Amendment. Ladies and gentlemen, the 14th Amendment turns 150 this year. It was passed in 1866. We're commemorating it with an incredible second founding <laughs> initiative. And we have a great partnership with it's the relentless. Gettysburg Foundation. I'm, look, I'm relentless. a constitutional salesman here. I'm trying to drum up some excitement know, about these documents. I'm also going to try to recite it uh, for you. So basically, this is, I, I left my pocket constitution at home. It says, basically, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall enforce any law which shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Whew, I think I did it. Okay. Sid, would, would Lincoln have supported Do the, Article 4. <laughs> Article 4. I can do the Fourth Amendment, but I'm, my, my memorization is progressing good faith, sequentially. Good faith and credit Full of the United States. You, you first. <laughs> shall, shall not be questioned. Nice. What, 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 what was Lincoln promising at Gettysburg? What, what did he w want the 13th Amendment to achieve, and would he, what, would he have supported the 14th Amendment? How broad did he want constitutional equality for African Americans? A myth grew up uh, involving Lincoln and what might have happened after the Civil War. Uh, and the myth was that Lincoln, uh, who had said, after all, to Grant, let him up easy, um, uh, 
wanted to uh, reconcile with the South and allow the South to establish its own relations, but as, it, as they were, but with slavery uh, uh, abolished. And yet a new form of slavery, a peonage, would be established somehow. Um, that myth appears in the famous movie Birth of a Nation about Lincoln. It's a, it's, it's a lost cause myth. While we don't know what Lincoln would have done, I think it's fair to say that he would have done almost nothing that Andrew Johnson did. Uh, uh, at the end of uh, Lincoln's administration, in his very last speech uh, uh, of uh, April 11th, uh, four days before he's assassinated, he calls openly for the beginning of citizenship for some African Americans. John Wilkes Booth is in the audience and says he knows what that means. Um, Lincoln's assassination, while uh, Booth thought it would decapitate the United States government and somehow contribute to the Confederate cause, did not continue the Civil War, but it was a very successful political act in eliminating Lincoln from continuing in dealing with the peace and reconstruction. Um, his attorney general, um, James Speed, uh, said that Lincoln is with us at the end, uh, meaning with the radical Republicans. That's not clear. We don't know, and we'll never know. But um, we know that uh, Lincoln shared almost none of the views of Andrew Johnson. Um, um, here's a, here are a couple stories about Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, who he knew not at all. He put him on the ticket for completely political purposes in order to win a very difficult uh, re-election campaign. Um, at the inauguration, Johnson gave a prolonged drunken speech. Lincoln leaned over and said, I never want to see him again. <laughs> but he did. He saw him on the afternoon of um, the day he was assassinated. He called him into a meeting because Johnson had been giving public speeches to crowds in hotels, calling for Confederates to be hung, like Robert E. Lee. And um, Lincoln said to him, I don't want you to speak in public again. And they had an acrimonious meeting, and that was their last meeting. And then the next day, Johnson was president. Johnson, um, uh, as uh, Annette's book points out, had been a slave owner himself. And um, he, um, he believed uh, firmly in white supremacy. Um, he did not believe in, this, in citizenship for African Americans. Lincoln was a consummate politician who had deep, long relations with many of the people in the Congress. Some of them were difficult, but he knew how to handle people. So, I'll just two examples. One, Charles Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, a very difficult man, um, very vain man, but the leader of the civil rights movement, as it were, in the Senate, uh, the sponsor of the first Civil Rights Act. And Lincoln, it was said, was the only man who could ever deal with him 
in a thousand ways, including inviting him to the second inauguration, picking him up in his own carriage and asking him to please escort his wife, Mary Lincoln, in. And um, so Sumner was somebody Lincoln dealt with. The person who was the sponsor of the 14th Amendment was Lyman Trumbull, the senator from Illinois. Lincoln had a very long and close relation, political relationship with Trumbull. He'd originally been an anti-slavery Democrat, and the two of them, among others, had created the Illinois Republican Party together. So Trumbull was somebody he could have dealt with. Johnson didn't want to deal with anybody. And so the loss of Lincoln was really the beginning of the loss of Reconstruction. We have a question from the audience relevant to this question, Annette, why did President Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address tie his speech to the Declaration of Independence rather than to the Constitution? Well, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence is a statement has been used as, since it was written, as a statement of universal values. And the Constitution is a legal document that organizes the country and addresses itself to the people of the United States of America. The Declaration of Independence addresses itself really to the world, the parts of the, the Declaration, not the part Jefferson's list of the grievances and so forth obviously is specific to George III and, and the United States, but the statements of values is a universal document and that's why it's been used for by people you know, all over the world. Uh, and Lincoln was making a statement about the people, but he was also trying to, well, making a statement about, about humanity. And the Declaration does that better than the United States Constitution. And Sean, Lincoln stood outside this very room in 1861 and said, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than abandon the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Why was he so attached to Jefferson's Declaration? Well, he says in a very famous letter, all honor to Jefferson. And the idea of equality, as, as you know, pronounced in the, in the um, Declaration of Independence, was very powerful, was universal. And, uh, but, you know, Jeff, it's important to recognize that for, for Jefferson, both of the documents that were crafted across the street were organically connected. He saw the Constitution as proceeding out of the Declaration of Independence. So that the values, for, Jeff, for Lincoln, the values of the, of, the, of the Declaration of Independence were always implicit in the Constitution. You could not have one without the other. So, to have, so the Constitution, by his reasoning, contained the idea that all men are created equal. And the Declaration is not law, but, but it is foundational law in the sense that it is the law that creates the United States of America that says we're no longer going to follow the laws of Great Britain, we're going to follow our own laws. So it follows from that that the thing that creates the, the country is this particular document, and the Constitution is, is you know, the, the organization, the procedural organization of all of them, and they go together. Many, many anti-Lincoln, you know, anti-Republicans in the North and the South, by the time the, the secession crisis, the, the slavery crisis is heating up, refer to the Declaration of Independence as a document of glittering generalities. Worse than that. They, they denounced the Declaration of Oh, and, and you know, Stevens, of course, repudiates Jefferson in his the Cornerstone speech. He says, we reject the Declaration of Independence. We reject Jefferson. Jefferson. He, you know, it, all men are not created equal. The African race is not equal to the white race. So he, was a, he becomes a controversial figure um, uh, for the South uh, during the Civil War. It, during the debate over the extension of slavery after the repeal of the Missouri Compromise in 1854, 
the Declaration of Independence becomes a subject of heated controversy in the Congress. And senator after senator get up who, who are in favor of extending slavery and denounce the Declaration. And one senator, Senator uh, Pettit of Indiana, calls it a, a self-evident lie. This arouses Lincoln, who repeats this often. For Lincoln, the Declaration is a foundational document. It is connected to the Constitution. This derives from elaborate anti-slavery thinking developed by Salmon Chase, who becomes Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, uh, and the old tiny Liberty Party. It really begins there, the first anti-slavery party that ran in 1840. And there's another document that's very important to Lincoln, and it's connected to Jefferson. And that document is the Ordinance of 17... Northwest Ordinance. Mm -hmm. Northwest Ordinance. That uh, was passed before the Constitution, um, created the whole Midwest as a free territory in which there could be no slavery. It was inspired by Jefferson. For Lincoln, this was an integral part of the Constitution and, and demonstrated uh, that the Constitution in the Western territories meant that there should not be an extension of slavery. And it's connected to what I was saying before about the original understanding um, the, the North would have said, yeah, we had, you know, we let you keep it where it was, but this, the Northwest Ordinance, Jefferson drafts it in 1784, it's redone later, uh, but the basic principles are there, as Sidney is saying, indicated that when we're going West, we're not going to take this with us. And so that's what the North is thinking the, the deal is, and the South is forgetting that. So I th we have just uh, time for one round, essentially, before we have our constitutional march across to the National Constitution Center. Um, our audience wants some lessons for today. Uh, several of these questions would like some. Uh, we're nonpartisan here and at Independence Hall, so I don't want you to comment on the current election. But Sean, based on our discussion, what have we learned from the resolution of these constitutional crises we've discussed, 1800, nullification, the Civil War, and Reconstruction? about what helps to resolve a crisis and how you avoid violence? Well, I mean, one of the things that, that, that I think comes out of this is that the Constitution is always being contested. That, um, you know, all of the struggles we're talking about and they last today, we're, we're, we're gonna be arguing about the Constitution for the rest of our natural lives and probably for the, the, the remainder of the Republic. That's number one. Um, number two, for our political leaders, um, an understanding of the Constitution, oh, put it differently, um, political argument in the United States almost inevitably always ends up being a constitutional argument. And that was true. All the people we're talking about, Andrew Jackson, they took the Constitution extremely seriously and they knew the Constitution. They, they differed over it, they struggled over it, but they knew it. It was crucial to American government in a way that I think many of us don't quite get and that we ought to get, that um, American politics is constitutional politics. And uh, if we ever, ever drift away from that, then the republic is in deep danger. Beautifully said. Annette, lessons for uh, today. Well, Tocqueville said that Americans are noted when he came to visit America that Americans resolve everything through the courts, that we are a legalistic people. And we're legalistic because the country starts with a, with a contract. 
the Constitution as a form of contract uh, among among the people. Um, the lesson I think we should take from it is that the republic, a republic, is a fragile thing, and that we have to take that very very serious. It's even more fragile in a republic that is comprised of a wildly divergent and diverse group of people. And we've been arguing about issues of race, issues of class, all of those things from the very, very beginning. And we just can't, and we have to be vigilant, and we have to be careful about how we do that, the circumstances under which we do that, and take uh, the documents that are there to give us guidance seriously, whether we may be thinking about changing them or whatever, but we don't, we're not a nation by blood, we're a nation by ideals, by ideals and ideas, and we have to remember that and to, be, and to take that very, very seriously. It could easily slip away. It was never guaranteed that it was going to work from the very beginning. We, we noted that at first people were sort of making things up as they go along. It's a work in progress, but we have to work at it. Beautiful. Sid, last word to you. Why is constitutional education important? We're involved in a, uh, in a great contest this year. And like many contests in the past, it revolves around the issue of constitutional interpretation. And as Sean and Annette have said, these arguments and this sense of the law and the rule of law have defined uh, the parameters of debate in campaigns and elections since uh, 1800, uh, the Revolution of 1800, as uh, Jefferson called it. And there have been differing positions. Even in 1860, those who uh, created the Confederacy believed that they had a constitutional view that was legitimate, that uh, existed within the United States Constitution that required them to leave the country and secede and create a new constitution, which they did. Uh, and it was an elaborate legal document. Uh, but the idea of, of, of going beyond any known interpretation of the Constitution into a complete twilight zone of where a candidate believes, for example, that there are 12 articles to the Constitution um, is beyond any un understanding of what exists in the document, even beyond what the Confederates thought. So this is, um, we're, we are now in new territory, but still in territory that involves very much um, the uh, existence of the Constitution. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard our three historians talk about the centrality of constitutional education for the survival of the future of democracy. We think the Constitution Center is an important part of that. I invite you now to join me. We can dramatically walk across Independence Mall and hear a great panel on the Senate and the Constitution. Please join me in thanking our superb historians. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen, who will return next week. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page and Twitter feed at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. 
Please subscribe to We the People and live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nicandro Yonachi.